Good morning, everyone. Some of you may be looking at that title and wondering where you've been for the last 41 weeks, because last week I started in Isaiah chapter 1. And here we are jumping, jumping to Isaiah chapter 42. As I said last week, Isaiah is a big vision. As we start out in verse 1 1, we hear this, this is the vision of Isaiah, and it's significant. It's a conceptually big vision, a, a vision that begins with heaven and earth being summoned to witness, to hear, uh, to listen to the indictments that God has against his people. But then it ends with that heaven and earth being so affected by what they hear that they are transformed into a new heaven and a new earth as we get to the close of the book. It's a vision about renewal on a massive scale, recreation, full redemption. Isaiah's vision then begins with historical Jerusalem, Judah in his own day, corrupt under judgment, but it finishes with the end-time city of God, the new Jerusalem, with eternal joy and delight that covers the whole earth. Isaiah is a sweep of a big, big vision, expansive, just like the God who is at the center of it all. We opened up last week, uh, Isaiah chapter 1, we went through the indictments, of course, uh, and as his word comes, as the Lord had spoken in those opening verses, it came with indictments. And thankfully, these shocking indictments as we move through the book, move to something that's more shocking. News of rescue, news of deliverance, news of cleansing, news of redemption, undeserved. Every count, undeserved. Uh, we should read this book of Isaiah shocked, shocked at the levels of rebellion, shocked at the devastation of judgment, but also shocked in the presentation of mercy, the presentation of compassion, a patient God who's purpose is to redeem and make his people to glorify him alone. So as we read through the narrative, and certainly I'm not going to be able to cover 41 chapters, as we move through this narrative of Isaiah, we should be looking for how is God going to provide? How will he do that? Of course, last week our, our main point was to get to that invitation that was given with that bit of irony as he got to verse 18, and he said, How are your sins who are, that are like scarlet, how shall they be white as snow? How will those sins that are red like crimson, how will they become like wool? This was, of course, a time of confession, a time to only confess because there really was no reasoning. Even though he said, let's come and reason together. This was a time for repentance, to turn to God, away from their rebellion, to confess their sin, agree with God about their position, and not to ignore their condition, not to trust their religion, and also not to ignore the provision. They were estranged, if you remember. They acted like strangers, and they actually treated God like a stranger. So as we move this morning into one of the servant songs, there are four of them, in the book of Isaiah, most popular, most well-known is probably Isaiah 53, 52 into 53. We're going to look at the first one because this vision of Isaiah moves from destruction 
to reconstruction. It moves from judgment to redemption. It moves from terrifying diagnosis to comforting renewal. As we get to the end of the book, the second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, in which all four of these servant songs are found, we're going to see something central to Yahweh's, God's message, is holy God, who is the holy judge, who only through him will this provision come. And he introduces us to this mysterious servant, because ruined in sin, the only hope for Israel, the only hope for us, is in God himself. He will be the one who provides this servant that will bring us to this place of redemption, of forgiveness, of cleansing, of having our sins, red, crimson, dripping off our praying hands, if you remember Isaiah chapter 1, to clean, white as snow, forgiven, able to stand before a holy God. So we're going to go to chapter 42 and study this first servant song of Isaiah and moving us to that direction of beholding the servant of just like we have sung, beholding Christ. Looking at him, gazing upon him, and we're going to see that through this very first servant song, although probably they were not sung, but they've been called that for at least a hundred years, maybe a little bit more, these four servant songs. So before we get there, let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day that we can come and and listen to your word, to worship you, to fellowship together here, uh, a people who are so prone to wander, uh, I am, so prone to wander from you, to lose that, that gaze upon Christ, and, and we come here together to do just that, to realign ourselves, uh, that that would be the, your work here this morning, to realign us, to, to bring our gaze back to your Son. Jesus, you, you are one that should be held before us so that we can behold you gaze upon you and your beauty, your glorious might and strength and reign over all your creation. You hold all things together. You sustain us. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us, that you would open our eyes here this morning as we look at you, God's servant, in this chapter of Isaiah, as we get to see this introduction Understanding that you are, you are the one who came to provide full redemption, forgiveness, and entrance into a relationship with a holy, holy God. Lord, use us uh, as we even go from this place, but speak to us here now to change our hearts, to transform us, to bring us to yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 42, the, the Holy One of Israel is going to achieve the hope, the grace, and the restoration promised through chapters 1 through 39, through this mysterious unnamed servant. The question that you would come to as, as an Israelite, uh, one of Judah, you would come to this chapter probably set in the future of Isaiah's time to an exiled people, but this first song introducing the servant, the question that they would be asking is, is Yahweh trustworthy? Can I trust him? Is he still for us? 
Will he accomplish his promises? These were the questions of a, of a people, the people of the covenant, who were broken, destroyed, either facing exile in the present speech that he's giving, uh, but future-looking those in exile. They'd be asking these questions, and certainly this is the question that we often, we often will ponder in our own heart in trials and difficulties and chaos, the weight of burdens that are uh, surrounding us. Is God trustworthy? Is he for me? Will he fulfill his promises? Isaiah, or Israel, in fact, was in a state of probably crisis of who to trust, uh, trusting in themselves, of course, trusting in their religion. Uh, we looked at that in chapter 1. But also running to other nations. And if we were to read through the oracles uh, that I, Isaiah gives, the woes even to the nations, we would understand that often Israel ran to Egypt. They wanted to continually go to Egypt. And we would see that in chapter 31 for sure. And God warns them, no, your trust is not in Egypt. This is a long book of figuring out trust, especially from Isaiah Isaiah chapter 40 on. God provides that hope as he fulfills his purpose. It's a very easy book to connect to our life when we talk about trust, trust that comes outside of myself, trust that can only be found in the Lord. So as we move forward here, this is maybe the um, overarching main point of, of what I want to share with you here this morning, that is God's people remembering rebellious, trusting in all the wrong places, sacked, exiled, beaten, broken. God's people will only find hope in God who, through his servant, provides forgiveness, redemption, and in the end, will make every wrong right, turning hearts to worship him alone. Yahweh will accomplish this through his trustworthy servant. So as we walk through just these first four verses of chapter 42, this is the question we should always be asking is, is he trustworthy? Well, how is he trustworthy? How is this servant trustworthy so that I can behold him? So the outline that we're going to walk through here, four main points Depending on time, we may jump into the confirmation that comes after these four verses and also the new song. But the commission of the servant, the mission of the servant, the manner of the servant, and then the perseverance of the servant. Again, leading to this question, how is he trustworthy? How is the servant, how is Yahweh, in fact, considered to be the trustworthy one? Let me just read verses 1 through 4, and then we'll, we'll go back and just walk through these four verses. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the song, these four verses of the Lord's chosen servant. So the first thing I want to look at here is just in verse 1, the commission of the servant 
And of course, this first word has some background to it. Behold, my servant whom I uphold. This is not the first time that behold has shown up. In the book of Isaiah, we could go to immediate context and see at least two ways. In chapter 41, verse 11, behold is used to, in, in reference to the enemies of God, in whom Israel over and over trusted. It says, behold, your enemies will be shamed in chapter 41. In fact, he, he covers that quite heavily in the later chapters of, of chapter 30 and beyond as he gives those oracles. But he says, behold, your enemies will be put to shame. Those are the ones that they were trusting in. And later on in that same chapter, verse 24 of chapter 41, behold is now attached to, behold, your idols are empty. They're useless. They're not trustworthy. So just like your enemies are not trustworthy, neither are your idols. On whom we gaze matters. To whom we look, it matters. Not the enemies, not the idols. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold. My servant. This is Yahweh's servant. This is his servant from the Lord. Servant, slave. This is a person at, disposal, at, the, at the disposal of another to carry out his will. And of course, the context here is very, very special, very set apart, chosen by Yahweh, chosen above all others. No doubt they were probably thinking there's been other servants who have come. Moses, David, even Isaiah is called a servant. Israel, in fact, uh, herself is called a servant. But this is the servant of all servants. All the other servants were far short of this servant. And all others were pointing, in fact, to this servant. This is my servant, Yahweh says, whom I uphold. He is empowered by the Lord. I uphold him, therefore, he cannot fail. He will accomplish that which I have given him. Yahweh is well, uh, well pleased with his servant. Full approval to carry out and also to complete this mission. I've put my spirit on him, it says here. He is anointed, he is empowered by Yahweh himself. A few verses in, in, back in chapter 11 of Isaiah. This is talking about the righteous reign of the branch, the shoot that would come from Jesse, another reference to Christ. But listen here to how the spirit of the Lord is on him. Isaiah chapter 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with, with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Quickly, we would probably think about the synoptic gospels. Uh, John does not record this, but the Matthew, Mark, and Luke do 
where at the baptism of Jesus, these very same words are spoken, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Approval, anointed with wisdom, knowledge, counsel, and might. This servant that we are to behold is not just a representative. He is the one who will execute the plan. He's not just a representative. He is one who, in fact, will execute the plan of God. So don't reject our position, our condition, remember in chapter 1, uh, or don't trust in our position, don't trust in our, ourselves, don't trust in our religion. Don't reject the provision. The servant of the Lord came to not just represent Yahweh, but also execute the plan that was set before. And that is here the mission of the servant. We see this repeated three times in verses 1, again in verse 3, and then in verse 4. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will bring forth justice in truth, in verse 3. And then, in context, he will not stop, in verse 4, until he has established justice in the earth, in all the earth. Justice here simply means that which is right, fitting under the reign and rule of a righteous and holy king. Justice for all nations, in all the earth. This is global justice. Justice that is based on truth. God as the standard of that truth. Not man, not creation, not Mother Earth, not politics of a broken, wicked, warped system. There's a day coming when wrongs will be made right, sufferings will end, and there will be peace under the reign of the king. In Isaiah's day, in in our day, sin wrecks everything. And we live out that sin willingly. We live it out that which is not fitting, not according to what is right. Our world is warped. uh, Truth is distorted. We rule by self Uh, selfish injustice agendas that are driven by selfish perseverance aims for those who want to keep the power. Well, every power will be brought low when the king comes. God will bring justice through this servant, establishing truth and righteousness. There will be restoration. All the wickedness will be reversed. And this justice will come through Yahweh's servant. The next two verses talk about the manner of the servant. This is very important. The manner of the servant. Yahweh's servant comes with humility and meekness. Not arrogance, not, not as a tyrant, not flaunting his power. We would write this story so much differently, wouldn't we? If we want Jesus, King Jesus, to come, we would write that story quite differently. Well, how does this actually then make us want to trust in this servant, in this servant of Yahweh's who is sent, chosen, commissioned to bring justice, tyranny and trust do not go hand in hand. Tyranny and trust do not go in hand. He will draw, him, draw people to himself instead, not through the exertion of, of power, but he will draw them to himself through meekness, through humility, through compassion, and through suffering. In due time, not like a reckless army that bowls over its enemies, 
His humility, his meekness and power will complete the mission. But the servant doesn't come as a bully. He doesn't come to break down the doors. In fact, there's an interesting account in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Jesus heals someone. Then he actually goes on and heals a whole bunch of people. And he says, don't tell anyone. Why does he do that? We see him do that over and over in the Gospels. His time has not yet come. But for Matthew, he connects in, in chapter 12, verses 15 to 21, particularly 18 to 21. He connects that statement, don't tell anyone, to these very words of Isaiah, connecting Christ back to this first servant song, showing that he is Yahweh's servant. In verses 18 to 21, verbatim, he says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, nations, Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Don't tell anyone that I just healed these people. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is what Matthew does. He applies this text to Christ at the very moment after healing someone, he says, now I don't want you to go back and tell everybody what I just did. The manner of the servant is in humility. The manner of the servant is in meekness. As he here then talks about the bruised reed and the smoldering wick, uh, very often we think, uh, we apply this quickly to this. This is, must be an allegory. Uh, must be talking about how he ministers to hurt people. I, I think in Isaiah's context, it does not mean that, although that is a true statement that he does minister to hurt and broken people, which I am very thankful for as a hurt and broken person. But here, Isaiah's context is probably a little bit different. Um, he does not come in and destroy his enemies immediately. He doesn't come in with that army rolling through, crushing all of his enemies. He comes with mercy. He comes with patience. In Isaiah 36, 6, he actually calls, and he does this several times, he, he calls Isaiah the reed, and, or, or Israel, or Egypt, sorry. He calls Egypt the reed. And very often Israel, or Egypt, is considered to be like a reed. They were the nation of the, the Sea of Reeds. So they very quickly became this nation known as the reed. And in uh, Isaiah 36.6, he gives this word applied to Egypt, calling them the reed. And then also in chapter 43.17, he talks about this wick being the enemies of God, that they were a smoldering wick. So the context here is important because He's talking about coming in and not bruising the reed, not breaking it off, and not snuffing out the smoldering wick that is soon to be put out anyway. It's almost as if he's talking about the servant is passing through the marsh, not a fragile twig will be broken, and the draft from his movement will not snuff out this smoldering wick. He comes in quietly. He comes in with humility. He comes in with patience. 
In fact, earlier in the oracles, as he's giving these woes to the nations, he makes a very interesting statement. He actually says, behold, Egypt, my people. I thought they were his enemies. He is projecting out that there will be a people from, uh, from Egypt that will be mine. Leading us right to, of course, Revelation 5, where every tribe, every nation, every tongue is gathered around that throne. So he comes with patience. He even, in his oracles, talks about Egypt. There will be some of you that I will call my people. He waits. He gives life. He waits to give life. He waits to redeem, not coming to initially destroy. Mercy for his enemies. I put myself in that seat. We would not be here today as Gentiles, most of us probably, as Gentiles. We would not be here today if it wasn't for the manner of the servant who came in meekness, humility, with patience. He wants to see us come in repentance, come to him, come to behold him and worship him. We are here today because of that patience. We are here today because of that manner of the servant. He should have crushed us. He should have snuffed us out. But by his mercy, by his grace, he chose to wait. Behold the servant. The last thing here is the perseverance of the servant. We see this in verse 4. Where it says he will, not, um, yeah, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Uh, it's not obvious here that the servant in the first song suffers. We get that in the, other, in the other songs later, of course, in chapter 52 and chapter 53. But as Isaiah has already spoken in verse 3 about the bruised reed or not extinguishing the faintly burning smoldering wick, Isaiah here uses the same exact words as he used in verse 3, where he talked about the manner. Now he talks about the servant's perseverance. So in verse 3, we, we just read this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Well, here in verse 4, he turns this around to the servant. He will not grow faint, same exact root word of the faintly burning wick, or be discouraged, he says at the end. Some translations actually have here crushed. Same exact verb as the bruised reed. So the servant, in his perseverance, in his mission, as he was commissioned by the Lord, he will not be extinguished. He will not fail. He will not be bruised to the point of being deterred of completing his mission. The servant will persevere even after receiving the suffering and the wrath that the nations deserved that which they didn't receive immediately in his patience, in his meekness, in his commitment to wait and save and redeem the lost. But he will be bruised. But on the third day he will be raised. And he is risen. He was bruised. But here he says he will not be extinguished, he will not fail, he will not be bruised to the point of being deterred from completing his mission. The suffering that he gets from the nations will not deter him from his mission. He will establish justice 
in the earth, he will complete the redemption. As we know, the suffering was the means, in fact, of his exaltation, of his glorification. And then verse 4 ends with the coastlands will wait expectingly, waiting for his law. This is the world's response here to the servant. They will stake their future on what he reveals to them, having been won to his allegiance. They get to the point where they behold the servant as their provision, as the only way of rescue out of their indictments, out of their predicaments of dripping red hands. So Yahweh's servant is trustworthy. This servant is trustworthy because of his commission, how he was sent, because of his mission that will not fail, that he will complete, because of his manner of how he comes, and then his perseverance. As we move from there in verses 5, really verses 5 through 8, we see a confirmation. This is no longer the song uh, of this, this servant, but this is confirmation from the Lord. Um, and really, as we read through this, this reaches all the way to us, reaches all the way to the church, reaches all the way as us as witnesses for Christ. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, or thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Referring back to the servant, to open the eyes of that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. This is Yahweh. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. It's going to move on to there from to a song, singing about the Lord in this new song. But I want to give a few comments about this confirmation here in verses 5 through 8. He is talking about the servant as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners. And this, in fact, was the calling that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul. And in fact... Paul talks about this very same task, which seems quite impossible, doesn't it? That Paul would be given this commission as uh, one who is going to open up blind eyes, one to go and, and bring out the prisoners. That is an impossible task placed on humans. Showing again, this is the work of the servant. This is the work of Christ and all of his authority. But as he gets even to chapter 13 of Acts... And then again in chapter 26, we, we hear about this commission that is given to not just Paul, but also Barnabas. It says there um, in Acts 13, 46 and 47, For the Lord has commanded us, not just Paul, he was the one who originally heard this, but he, he now places the application on him and Barnabas and quite possibly the church, is his meaning. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation 
to the end of the earth. He, he repeats this in Acts 26, verses 17 and 18. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's rehearsing his uh, meeting with Christ on that road to Damascus, telling them his call, telling them his, his mission, which is in and of himself impossible, of course, to carry out. But the message that he would be sending is Israel failed as the light of the nations. Jesus, as the servant, came perfectly fulfilling this task, as we read in Isaiah chapter 42, and then we are to declare Jesus' fulfillment. We, as witnesses to the nations, witnesses to this servant who came as a light to the nations, the hope of the nations, we are now his witnesses to that fulfilled task of the servant. If we go further on into this song, verses 10 through 13, it says here, Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and the inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Keter inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. New song to the ends of the earth. Shouts for joy from the tops of the mountains. Let them give glory to Yahweh. He will prevail over all of his enemies. The servant fulfills the mission. And at the throne of Revelation, we see every tribe, every nation, every tongue come and worship the Lamb. The servant. Let the nations come. Let the nations bow down. Let the nations see this servant who has fulfilled the mission. Let's behold the servant. He is trustworthy. Hope in Him. Trust Him. Surrender to Him. Everything comes from Him, through Him, and everything is done for Him. The commission of the servant sent by Yahweh, the chosen one, well-pleasing to Him because He can complete it and fulfill it. The mission of the servant to bring true righteousness and justice to all the earth, to all nations, and that will be done in truth. The manner of the servant, he comes in meekness, he comes with patience, he comes with grace, offering that same invitation. How will your sins, your red, crimson sins, be made white as snow? It'll be through me. That's what the servant says. I came to fulfill that. I came as your provision. And it's only through me. But he came with meekness. He came with patience. And praise God that he did because none of us would be here. Each one of us would be crushed, extinguished like that smoldering 
wick, bruised. But he came with perseverance, the perseverance of the servant. He came and he would not be extinguished. He would not be bruised to the point of deterring him from the task that he has been given. So he is commissioned, chosen, empowered, upheld, fully pleasing to Yahweh. Only the servant can come and complete this mission to bring justice to all the nations, that justice would be through all the earth, to, a redeem, to redeem a people with meekness and humility as he endured the suffering and took upon himself our sins, our wrath that we deserved. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Behold him, the trustworthy one, the servant of the Holy One. This servant is glorious, and we are to gaze at him, behold him, and find great comfort and encouragement and hope in him and in him alone. This is the first picture of the servant that Isaiah gives. He'll give three more. And of course, ending with that one is so clearly connected to the work on the cross. Behold the suffering servant. He came to suffer and die for us that we might have hope, that we might have life everlasting. And we come to him by faith in his completed work as this servant who came from Yahweh with a mission that he would complete in a manner of grace and mercy to a people who do not deserve the life that we would get through him. And his perseverance, there is nothing that deters him from completing that mission. Behold my servant. Gaze on him. Look on him. Behold the servant Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. These words of your, your servant given through Isaiah, we come this morning beholding you because everywhere else we look has no hope. Everywhere else we look leads to destruction. But when we look at you, when we gaze upon you, you fill us with hope and strength and comfort. Because Jesus, as, as the servant, you came to complete this mission of redemption, of bringing justice, full justice. And Lord, as you went through the most unjust, unjust thing we could even think of, it was to prove the justice, the justice and righteousness of Christ, uh, of God, of the triune God, it was to prove His righteousness. And Lord, we now receive the exact opposite of what we deserve. The righteousness of, of You placed on our account. We thank You that we have such a servant that we can behold and gaze upon and look to to find our complete and full hope in You alone. Thank You. And Lord, I pray that You would do Your work through this church as we are light witnesses to the fulfilled mission of the servant that we would declare this good news to those around us and share this hope 
set this hope before them in the way that we live, in the way that we speak, in a world that is so against you, so distorted. Lord, let us be shining for, for Christ as your body. Do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.